447 bodies have been found in a mass grave in Izum, a liberated town in eastern Ukraine's Kharkiv region. 30 bodies bear the signs of torture. Izum is another example of Russian war crimes and atrocities on the Ukrainian territories Russia has occupied since its full-scale invasion this year. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. This is our weekly digest covering key events and trends in and around Ukraine from September 18th to September 25. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova, Ukrainian scholar and journalist who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So, Tanya, let's start our our weekly digest. And first, let's focus on this, uh, the signs of atrocities that we have seen in Izum. This is something that is discussed uh, in Ukraine for, for already several weeks. Um, let's try to understand what happened and what we are witnessing now. Well, during this week, the, the process of exhumation of bodies in these mass graves was finished finally. So we have final figures about people who were killed, who were buried there. A total of 447 bodies were were exhumed. And among them, they found 215 women, 194 men, five children. This is uh, tragic. And 22 military. And uh, we have to add there 11 bodies where uh, they were not able to detect even the biological sex. And 30 of them, as, as you've said in the beginning, uh, were bearing the signs of torture. Most of uh, these bodies were died of the force of the violent deaths, uh, most of them uh, from shelling, but some of them were tortured. So this process of exhumation and identification took uh, the whole week um, for people present on the site. We have a lot of descriptions how this walk was proceeding. It was extremely difficult because, uh, um, because of order. Because of um, people were working all, all the day, day long, they were exhuming uh, 50 bodies for, per day. And uh, now this is a pro- process of identification and uh, specifically of the bodies, which are impossible to detect even the biological sex. At the same time, what we know from the town of Izum is that uh, it was severely, severely shelled in the beginning of March and there is no one uh, entire building and not touched by Russian shelling at that very moment. Uh, we, w- we could barely say that this town itself is almost inexistent, inexistent because it's kind of ruins and the big question how the pe- how people could uh, spend the winter which is coming now because there is no heating and no electricity and no internet uh, now when Ukrainian military are on the site they can use people can use starlings 
to con- to connect with their relatives somewhere elsewhere in Ukraine, but the situation on the ground is extremely dramatic until now. No mobile connection even. No mobile connection. And extremely difficult. Uh, civilians can enter the site, but for journalists you have to to have a authorization from from a military administration and the humanitarian situation in Izum and we, we can guess in many other many other villages and towns in liberated Kharkiv region uh, is extremely extremely difficult unfortunately we have also lots of people who are still considering as missing as for example uh, one of our colleagues uh, writer Volodymyr Vakulenko who is uh, was in Izum and he's still considering missing uh, although of course everybody still keeps hope that he's alive and um, but uh, but in this situation when for example many many bodies are not identified or we can assume that many people were taken hostages by the russians and we we still don't know where where they are so let's, ma- let's maybe explain how these graves appeared so um it it was not russians who made these burials in fact when russian russians attacked the city and then they entered the city there were a lot of uh, deaths because first of all they were shelling uh, buildings civilian infrastructure and as uh, we receive witnesses people say that dead bodies were everywhere in the streets and also inside uh, destructed buildings and then it was ukrainians ukrainian service uh, funeral service and people who were engaged in this funeral service who uh, made the burials in the forest and they uh, they didn't they didn't know the names of the victims that's why they put numbers on the crosses but these numbers uh, they help to and but they had the list so now it's possible to identify um, uh, so russians they didn't even organize any kind of burials for these uh, civilian victims and uh, about vakulinka uh, unfortunately this is not the only place of uh, of burials of of ukrainian citizens in this occupied and now liberated uh, uh, cities izum and many others uh, unfortunately we are uh, waiting for other places to be uh, discovered and to be uh, for bodies to be exhumated so more news to come but we still hope for vakulinka he has a son Eleven uh, years old son with autism, and uh, his mother. They are in uh, in Kharkiv region, and they have no news from from Vakulinka for many months already. Yeah. So uh, the thing is that uh, at every every liberated place that Ukrainian army is is is, is entering, we see the the places of these extreme atrocities and uh, violent deaths. As you mentioned, uh, several dozens of these people, uh, the majority of them, we assume that they have been di- they have died from the shelling, but several dozens, 30, I think, right? 30. Uh, they, they bear the signs of torture. That means there are ropes uh, around their necks or their, their hands are tied or with, as in the cases with several male bodies, they have been castrated. Yes, indeed. So, and, uh, so we don't know the exact number, but uh, 
But yes, but even there were images of that torture. The cases of these castrations, we see that this is also repetitive thing uh, that Russian soldiers or I don't know how to call them, maybe some other other professions, uh, they apply to uh, to Ukrainian uh, prisoners, sometimes to prisoners of war. So th- this th- this thing, this tragi- tragedy, should also give us an understanding that Ukrainians are fighting not only to liberate their territories. Uh, the the territory, what is behind these territories, is the human lives, and uh, we understand that as in Bucha there were at least 400 violent deaths, as in Izum. Can you imagine what is happening in bigger cities like Kherson or Mariupol? We, we cannot even imagine that. So if the world is horrified with Bucha and Izum, I think we know only about 10% of what is going on. And we just need to understand this. And let me link uh, these to, to the important speech made by President Zelensky this week uh, at the UN General Assembly. Uh, and uh, I just uh, call you to, to, to watch this speech because it was in English. And uh, Zelensky, as, as, as the president, was not very good English speaker, not very good Ukrainian speaker as well when he became president in 2019. So he he's progressively learning these two languages and in Ukrainian he's he's already a perfect speaker uh, but with English he 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 was also okay so he delivered his message and uh, I will not retell you the the messages of the speech but for me personally the speech was primarily about morality it was not about territories it was not about geopolitics it was not about resources it was not o- also about weapon supplies it was all about morality it's all about good and evil. So why Ukrainians want so badly to liberate our territories? Not because we, we hold hold on territories who are rich in resources, in in coal, in steel, in, in iron, in, in gold. This is not the case. We want to get back our territories because on these territories atrocities are happening. Just to protect life, the, the, his expression was uh, that we are protecting life in these territories. And he was providing his formula for peace, five points of this formula for peace, and this protection of life was uh, and uh, punishment for the aggressor were the first points. A uh, very powerful speech, very just one. Um, and it's a pity, sometimes it's a pity for us that uh, international media, they were all discussing what Lavrov said at the UN General Assembly, but much less attention and much less discussion about what Zelensky said at that assembly. Yes, so let let us just advise you to uh, listen to the speech. It is available on YouTube, uh, and it is in in English, so no, uh, no... Difficulty to understand and no problems in with lost in translation or something like that. So let's let's move on. Although it is very difficult to move on from this Izum massacre, uh, we will try to publish more materials. We will publish uh, maybe tomorrow, maybe in a few days, on our website Ukraine World, a, a, an account of people who went there. Um, unfortunately, we personally with with uh, Tanya. We are also supposed to go there, but as you can probably hear from our voices, we got COVID. 
but our other colleagues uh, are going to probably to Izum as well, and uh, we hope to publish videos from that from that place. Um, another. So we will continue to follow this topic and, of course, other topics of Ukrainian liberated territories. Another important uh, events in in this week is, is of course, the the mobilization, so-called mobilization, which is announced by by Russia, and a speech which has been given by Putin when he announced this mobilization. And frankly speaking, I was and everybody is just commenting this speech, and I think the general consensus is that Putin really looked very, very weird. He did not look as self-confident as he looked when he announced the invasion on 24th of February. He looked much weaker. He looked much, much less confident. His stance was very strange, the way how he sits, the way how he holds his arms. And we also know that the speech was uh, delayed, postponed. It was first supposed to be delivered on uh, in the evening, and then it was delivered uh, on the next morning. What are your impressions from this? Um, my impressions are that, yes, indeed, uh, Putin looked uh, frightened in a way, weakened in a way, and we understand that this decision, this is a historical decision for Putin. Uh, it was taken after his visit to Samarkand, where he met some some Oriental leaders and prim- primarily leaders of India and China. And he was told that nobody is so very much happy with this war in Ukraine. And uh, he understood he is getting weaker, not only in the eyes of the West, but also in the eyes of the East. And... Uh, he 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 chose the the worst scenario for himself. We understand that he was postponing this mobilization for many months already because we were discussing mobilization from the very beginning. Why Russia couldn't they could start this mobilization back in March or in April and May? Why the, he was postponing because it was clear for him that it was it is extremely extremely risky political decision because there is a kind of um, kind of. Um, understanding in Russia that they everybody agrees for a war to be somewhere in Ukraine, somewhere where some contract contractual army, some people who sign contracts will fight for for glorious Russia, but it would not touch an ordinary Russian family. So what is happening now when the professional army professional army, Russian army, was defeated in Ukraine. I mean, in many regions and uh, recently in Kharkiv region, uh, the worst is knocking at the door of ordinary Russians. And it changes everything for for politically. I mean, because uh, r- for Russians, it means that this is not uh, about, the, about uh, glory. This is not about uh, um, pictures on the TV. This is about their destiny. This is about their own experience, about their own losses. And let's maybe come back to the article of uh, Chief Commander Zaluzhny. We already discussed in one of our previous uh, previous podcasts. You remember that Zaluzhny was also highlighting the fact of this asymmetry between Ukraine and Russia. Ukrainians, uh, all of Ukrainians are suffering from this war. We all have this experience of the war. For Russians, it's something with the war is resumed in something on the TV. For most of them, most of them, they have no direct experience. Now, everything's changed. Mobilization, uh, Putin announced it like a partial 
mobilization. But what we see from social media, from media, from media, from journalists, it looks like they try to mobilize everybody they can reach out. So they, they're trying to mobilize. Every, there were some villages um, in Far East, in Russia, where every man was mobilized. So it's a, it's real mobilization. And it means that there is a kind of a social contract which is broken between Putin's and his people because for them, no, not a lot of them, of Russians will agree to die for this uh, in this war. So um, I would say that, to, to cut a long story short, military, on the military point, of, from the military point of view, it will certainly create a lot of problems from for Ukrainian troops, even if uh, many. Russians try to leave the country, even if they are not prepared, even if they don't have a lot of modern weapons, etc., etc., it will represent some military problems for Ukraine and maybe slow down this counteroffensive of Ukrainian army in the east and in the south. But politically, politically, this decision is weakening political regime in Russia. And it, cre- it is um, creating additional risks for internal situation in Russia. Yes, and uh, Putin is facing a... Every, everybody is now talking, many people are talking that this is kind of a zugzwang because not declaring mobilization is bad because uh, currently Ukrainians uh, outnumber Russians uh, uh, physically on the front line. So there are simply more Ukrainian, understandably more Ukrainian soldiers on the front line because Ukraine has conducted mobilization and it's gradually, uh, gradually uh, increasing and reinforcing its its reserves. So Russians were outnumbering Ukraine in terms of equipment, in terms of artillery, in terms of ammunition, in terms of shells. But uh, land lease is approaching uh, and uh, Ukrainians are getting more and more Western weapons, high precision weapons. And Ukrainians have shown that they remarkably can use these weapons. And um, this creates kind of a a symmetry already and uh, disadvantage from the Russian side. So when we're talking about this mobilization, the question is probably not that the result of this mobilization will be that Russia will be able to make a big offensive, another offensive on Ukraine, but rather that it will be able to uh, suspend, to stop, to slow down Ukrainian counteroffensive. This is probably the, the the key goal of it. And maybe let's also uh, talk about another important point from this Putin speech. Uh, when he was talking on Monday about this um, partial mobilization, he also announced uh, these referendums. Uh, at least he said that Russia will support the result of these referendums. And another important issue of this week, referendums in four Ukrainian regions, in Kherson, in Zaporizhia, in the Donetsk and in Lugansk. But maybe the first thing to say here is that none of these regions is completely, entirely controlled by a Russian army. Even uh, Lugansk region, which was almost controlled by Russians back in July, it is there were already a couple of villages reconquered by Ukrainian troops recently in, in last during last week and the previous week. So it means that they're trying to organize these referendums. And what was important in the speech of uh, Putin and that it was it was repeated by Lavrov um, that uh, when Russia will uh, recognize this uh, illegally for sure and next territories as Russian territories, they will 
use any kind of uh, weapons to protect this uh, as Russian territory. It means that they they are um, uh, they are talking about nuclear weapons as well. So what they are they are trying to threaten everybody and first of all Western partners of Ukraine with this use of nuclear arms. Yes, and this is very, I mean, when you listen to Putin and uh, to Shoigu, who, who made an interview just after him, it's just incredibly incoherent, incredibly incoherent, because it's just, as always, full of lies. First, uh, Shoigu said that the uh, the death toll of the Russian soldiers is 5,000 people, I think, right? Or five or 6,000. Five, yeah. yeah 6,000 people. Ukrainians are, are saying that this is 50,000 people. Uh, and uh, well, maybe even if Ukrainian figure, uh, if Ukrainian estimations of Russian losses is uh, went uh, go, goes too far, uh, then surely that Shoigu's figure is not uh, not realistic. Because why would you conduct mobilization if initially you had an army which invaded Ukraine, which was I think one hundred eighty thousand. 80,000 people, something like this, and you lost 5,000 people. So why would you declare a mobilization and mobilize another 300,000 or some say 1 million people? What is the sense of it? And it's, it would be interesting to listen to Russians who believe this Russian propaganda. How do, you, how do they explain it? The second incomplete, like crazy incoherence is that Putin continues to maintain, and he also said it in Samarkand, that the goal of this operation is to liberate uh, the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic. Uh, but what, why, they are doing well, what they are doing in the south, what they are doing with Kherson and Zaporizhia, and why they are conducting referenda in these regions. I looked into this bulletin, so-called, the, 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 the ballots, and there are a question, do you agree that blah, 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 the Donetsk People's Republic, whatever. But then when they mention Zaporizhia and Kherson, they mention oblasts, the Ukrainian oblasts. And uh, they control only a tiny part of it, may, maybe one half of, of each, right? As in Kherson, maybe a little bit more, but in Zaporizhia, this is this is ridiculous because in Zaporizhia region, they uh, they they control just a little part, much less than a half. So and so they don't control the center; they don't control the city of Zaporizhia. They, they, they don't control Zaporizhia. So my question is: Okay, they will hold a referendum on these tiny parts of Zaporizhia region, and they will declare the whole Zaporizhia oblast, including the city of Zaporizhia as part of Russian territory. And they will say, okay, but Ukrainians are staying, as they will say, obviously, with regard to the Ukraine-controlled Donetsk region, and there are a big part of it under Ukrainian control, they will say, okay, Ukraine occupied parts of Russia. So they will say that Ukraine uh, is occupier, not Russia is occupier. Yeah, so presenting- in generally, th- th- this will already mean the result of the referenda, if you think it logically, this will already mean that they will declare uh, Ukraine as an occupying country, which occupied parts of Russia, and therefore, I mean, all this nuclear uh, bullshit, nuclear blackmail is already possible now. So they, they, they should actually attack Ukraine with nuclear weapons on the, on the next day, 
Yeah, but and and the contradiction here is they why do they need these three hundred thousand people mobilized people if they are planning to use nuclear nuclear uh, weapons against Ukraine? So a lot of uh, a lot of misunderstanding here and a lot of uh, lies for sure. And uh, they are presenting now the aggressive war against Ukraine like a defensive war. Because now they will present it like we we are defending, I don't know, people, nation of Kherson or nation of uh, Zaporizhia. This is an absurd term. They're talking about nations, about people living in all these territories. So this is absurd. And they will be defending, pretending to defend these people. We understand that nobody, nobody in the whole world believes what what Russians are saying now. But nevertheless, it's still extremely dangerous um, for Ukraine and for for partners, um, my guess is that maybe this they are trying to reach out to negotiations. So, and maybe after they announce this referenda results, they will be a starting point for them. Just a pause between their results and the announcement of the of Putin that they accept these territories to Russia. There will be a time lap. For negotiations, so the, he will start. He will try to start negotiations. Then, look, now I can annex these territories, or we talk. But the Ukrainian position from the Ukrainian officials, numerous times, it was uh, like we, we don't want to talk, yeah. and um, we will talk only after regaining our territories. But let's also be. Realistic that, uh, I mean, the counteroffensive, which was held during the past weeks in Ukraine, in Kharkiv region, it has already reached its limits. So it cannot be, it cannot be indefinite, right? So we will most probably witness a kind of a, a kind of a hold or a pause in it. It cannot, it cannot, it cannot go. It cannot go indefinitely. Maybe so, but at the same time, I'll be I'll be cautious here. But uh, we do have some information which is not official at that very moment. But there are things going in uh, in places around Liman. Sometimes with some significant progress. Nothing is official. So, but it looks like. Um, like there are still some efforts with not not such uh, extraordinary speed like it happened in Kharkiv region, but still there is some important moves in in Lugansk region and in Kramatorsk uh, region as well. So let's be cautious about that. We don't know. We don't Kramatorsk region. What do you mean? I mean uh, for around this, around around Kramatorsk. So it, it it is Donetsk Donetsk region. There are several points. So let's not uh, name the villages because uh, this is not official. They were not communicated by um, but uh, Ukrainian army. But uh, there are some information coming from at least this place around Liman. And there is also information about Kherson and the information published in New York Times that it was a personal order of Putin uh, to stay on the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the right bank of Dnipro around Kherson because troops were already ready to leave this, uh, this place and their commanders were asking Putin to let them leave because they are 
in a way encircled because behind them there is Dnieper River because they have um, distracted logistics, say they are short of everything there. But the personal order of Putin was to stay there until the very end. So um, let's not be too optimistic, but at the same time, I would not say that the counteroffensive now is exhausted or something like that. I'm not saying exhausted, but we can witness a pause. So just to, for our listeners, uh, most probably it will not be like a uh, this uh, kind of a blitzkrieg in, in other occupied regions right now. So Ukraine also needs to collect its reserves and to prepare another counteroffensive. Uh, we know that around Kherson, the bridges that we have discussed uh, the Antonivsky bridges are destroyed, um, so they are really almost impossible or impossible for Russians to, to use, but they are using this bridge, which is in Kachovka um, uh, hydroelectric power plant, and uh, it seems that they're using this, uh, this the very power plant facilities to transport the the equipment and their troops. So they still can can reinforce their forces on the right bank of, of Dnipro River. One last thing about mobilization is that you mentioned that for example in in many villages in the far east, like in Buryatia, we see the reports that really a troop uh, like uh, these commissariats are coming during the night sometimes to the villages and take all the men. This similar situation is in Crimea with Crimean Tatars. So this mobilization is really a punishment and a punishment for Russian ethnic minorities. Uh, we have seen it already in this war. I mean, there are so many information accounts about Buryats, primarily Buryats or Dagestanis or some other people who are coming for you to Ukraine, not ethnic Russians. This also creates this feeling for Ukrainians that this is something something different. So the Russians are increasingly equalized with non-Slavic people for Ukrainians. And uh, in, in the mythology, this popular mythology of Ukrainians, it is, of course... Uh, very often equalized with the Mongol invasion uh, of the medieval times of the 13th century. Uh, and, and Buryats, well, are playing, unfortunately, this, this uh, strange role of being uh, like the, the symbol of this repetition of this Mongolian invasion. But coming back to Crimean Tatars, we also see the reports that uh, in some villages, all Crimean Tatar men are taken to the mobilization, and some other up to 80-90%. And we understand that course, Crimean Tatars in Crimea are mostly against this uh, Putinism, of course. They're considering the Crimean uh, occupation as, uh, as another tragic story of their people. So they will be forced actually to, uh, to wage the war against Ukrainian army, who have also Crimean Tatars on their side, and politically they are kind of uh, a force to uh, to wage the war against people who are politically on their side. So this is one of those uh, 
absurd examples of this uh, of this mobilization. Maybe um, let me say one thing which is also important about this mobilization and about what's uh, the result of this uh, mobilization in Russia, what we see, what we witness, what we see at least, we don't witness, but we see in social media and media that a lot of Russians are fleeing the country. Uh, we see these uh, traffic jams on the border of Georgia, Mongolia, uh, they're going to Finland, they were trying to get uh, to catch planes in, during the first hours after this Putin announcement. On Monday, Tuesday, there were no more possibility to get out to Turkey or elsewhere. And uh, I would like to, 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 to mention this Ukrainian reaction to, this, uh, to these departures because uh, we observe a lot of Europeans and Western partners of Ukraine which, are, which look happy about this departure, saying that, uh, okay, Russians are leaving Russia, so it's good news, so nobody will be fighting. But uh, I would like to mention that Ukrainian perspective on that is slightly different, because um, uh, Putin needs these people to fight in this army. But uh, we Ukrainians, when we observe these mass departures, which were not there when Russia invaded Ukraine, when it committed all the war crimes here, when they killed thousands of people here in Ukraine, we need these people to fight against Putin. And uh, uh, in a way, Ukrainians are disappointed with such departures. And this is a kind of way, Russian way to avoid this historical responsibility of the whole nation for what's going on. Because... Uh, there are already millions of people, millions of male, I mean uh, adults, male who left the country and who, who are accepted or will be accepted in many countries. For example, we've seen this, we've seen this debate in, in Germany. Germany, for example, uh, seems to be ready to accept these young males from Russia and uh, to accept them as uh, refugees and to provide them all the facilities for them not to fight in this war together and somewhere, we guess, somewhere close to Ukrainian women and somewhere close to Ukrainian women and kids somewhere in Germany. And uh, Ukrainians, they have the feeling of injustice when we see that because these people, these millions, we are not talking about hundreds of thousands. We are talking about millions of, of Russians who left their homeland starting from the February. They could have changed things inside Russia instead of Ukrainians to change the, the way of the history, uh, paying the extremely high price by human lives of our soldiers and of our civilians. We are paying an extremely high price for this war and we expect and I think we have the right to expect for Russians to to contribute in a way by protesting now. They were not protesting a lot in the beginning of war. Still there were some protests, but not a huge number of them. This is maybe the moment of the truth so for them to protest and to not to flee the country, but to fight against Putin. Exactly. I think the Ukrainian's attitude to Russians right now is very negative. Uh, and uh, it's uh, the attitude to Putinists is Putinists are bastards and anti-Putinists are cowards. This is in two words. And uh, the... The, the the tragic situation is that yeah the more the more people who 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 would who would be able to oppose the Russian regime, 
the more of them will flee the country, the less uh, there is a possibility that Russia will ever become normal and will, will stop this war and there will be anti-war protests or whatever. The second thing is that it's so absurd to see the lines of Russian cars going to Georgia and there were lots of colleges in, in the internet that in 2002... Uh, the, 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 there was the, the, the lines of tanks, Russian tanks going to Georgia, and now there is this lines traffic jams of cars, uh, very often the same roads. And, uh, well, the, the, the really the question of, of responsibility. So now Russians are fleeing their country without being able to take up the responsibility and to stop this cruel regime. Yes. And some of them are erasing these Z and V signs. There were a lot of discussions, on, at least I've seen many images on Twitter uh, between the Russians. They're discussing how could you, could you erase a Z or V on your uh, tattoo or, uh, or whatever on your car. And if, if Georgians let you in, if you are having these signs on your car. So we, we see that not, o- not only the opponents of Putin regime flee, Everybody who don't want so so people who supported this special military operation in the beginning, they try to flee now because they don't want to be killed by the Ukrainian army. I just army. don't don't understand the Georgian regime right now, uh, which which should have closed the border with Russians and which should have probably behaved in a different way. But that's another story. One last point. Let's discuss one last point: is the exchange of prisoners and uh, the coming back of the defenders of Mariupol. This is widely discussed here in Ukraine, because these people are real heroes uh, in in Ukraine, and uh, it's it's such a big joy that many of these people are now coming back. But the also paradox of the situation: there there are two aspects. The first aspect is why Russians let. Azov uh, fighters to Ukraine, including the, the the commanders, the commanders of the Azov battalion. They are in whom, Turkey. In whom him? Yeah, they are in Turkey, right? But whom? Uh, but uh, how they uh, how they allow them to you know as 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 exchange? Because the whole Russian propaganda was built upon the idea that these are Nazis. We will execute them. We will make justice to them. Uh, and now they are giving away <laughs> the so-called Nazis. And this is something that provoked perplexity among the Russian propagandists. They could not really understand it. They could not explain it to the Russian audience. Yeah, look, and it happened at the same time, the same day, in fact, the same day at this Putin speech about mobilization. Um, my guess is that this exchange was planned long before, and it was a simple coincidence uh, that it happens the same day, but imagine Putin is declaring uh, mobilization. He is talking about this big, big patriotic war. Not he's not t- uh, telling that, but we understand that this is about the, the real war, not only about special uh, military operation. Even still, he he still names it a special operation. But at the same day, he liberates the 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 biggest enemy of Russia. I mean, not it, it was not only people from Azov. The, maybe the most important people from Azov were exchanged, extracted to Turkey, five of them, and they will be in Turkey until the war ends. But they are allowed to see their family members, for example, and they are under the responsibility of Erdogan. There were 
uh, a role played by President of Turkey Erdogan in this exchange. There were also a role um, in this exchange by Russian oligarch Abramovich. There were also the importance of the Medvedchuk. We understand that Medvedchuk was exchanged. Medvedchuk, the closer friend of Putin, who was in, uh, arrested in Ukraine and stayed in prison for many months. Um, it is extremely successful um, exchange for uh, for Ukraine, and publicly they don't have a lot of details. There is simply this uh, happiness about this exchange, and let maybe let's maybe communicate the the last uh, positive news about this exchange that they're pregnant. Uh, uh, medical doctor, female, from Azovstal Mamontova. Uh, she was liberated on Monday, and today in the morning she gave birth to a girl in uh, in in Rivne, in Lutsky, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and uh, everything went very smoothly, and she's in good condition, and her baby is in very good condition. So it's a, it's a pure happiness for, for her and for her family, uh, imagine uh, she was captured when uh, she she was uh, she, she knew she was pregnant she she get good to know she was pregnant when she was already in in Azov style uh, she passed all, went through all these uh, extremely difficult weeks in Azov style and then four months of captivity in Russia and she was pregnant all that time and then she went back to Ukraine and uh, and she gave birth to her baby already being free and um uh, this is an extremely happy moment for for her and for, for I, I guess for whole ukraine but there are, there are not so happy stories like we see the those people from from Azovstal and one of the photos that uh, everybody have seen I, I think in Ukraine is the photo of uh, Mikhail Dianov one of the defenders also the uh, the the remarkable uh, defender and um, yeah, he has huge well he he lost uh, I think half of his weight he looks really much much worse than he was before he was uh, he is a strong man but uh, he was wounded in his right hand and it seems that he didn't have any decent medical treatment in the captivity and his right hand is as far as we see on the actually the photos are horrible uh, but it's almost not operational uh, not not functional so there are many people right now who are collecting well uh, there are many people who are donating funds to to have uh, a, a decent uh, medicine treatment medical treatment and decent surgery but this is also shows how russians are treating ukrainian prisoners of war uh, on on this particular example of mikhail adyanov and let's not for, not forget that many people are still in Russian captivity. And for example, our friend Maxim Butkevich, uh, prominent Ukrainian uh, human rights activist, he he's still in Russian captivity. Sometimes we see footage of him on on Russian Telegram channels or even official TV channels. And uh, let's hope that he will be part of the another group, another group of of exchange of Ukrainian prisoners of war. So this was a podcast explaining Ukraine, uh, a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. 
we try to uh, give you an idea of the major events and trends in and around Ukraine during the past week. Let me remind that my name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, and uh, I have talked, uh, as usual, my co-host is Tetyana Harkova, Ukrainian scholar and journalist uh, from Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Follow our website, ukraineworld.org. There are many materials, interesting materials, many stories of people who uh, who are coming from, going through this war and many analytic materials. You can also support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote the majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Follow us on various platforms, uh, stay with us and stand with Ukraine.